0: Welcome to Stonebridge. My name is David Scott. I am the student ministry pastor here. Um, our lead pastor is also named David, so you don't get too confused. Um, he is David Eldridge. He is out of town the next couple of weeks getting some much-deserved rest. and uh, So I get to tend the shop here with you guys for a couple of weeks, and I'm excited about that. So I wanted to share a story uh, from the thankful for portion really quick with y'all. If you've been coming to Stonebridge for a while, if you remember back in April after spring break, uh, I was welcoming y'all and I had my wrist all wrapped up, if you remember, and it was in the sling. And uh, what had happened, I'd gotten hurt on our mission trip and uh, had come back. And on Saturday, um, I'd gone to the doctor and they had x-rayed it. They had x-rayed my wrist and they said there was a fracture um, in my wrist. It was going to take a really long time to heal and yada, yada, yada. And so I showed up to you guys on Sunday, and it was my birthday month, and I said, what I want is for God to heal my wrist. I want to go back and for the fracture to be gone, and I want to not have to have a cast. Well, I went back um, the following Wednesday, and um, they didn't even x-ray me. They just threw the cast on, right? And so it was like, oh, disappointment. I had to come back and show up in front of you guys with a cast, and that was awkward for all of us, but we got through it because we're close. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, all of that to say... Uh, This past Monday, um, I went back because it was time to uh, look at the cast and take it off. And they did a CT scan. They had done a CT scan. And the doctor came in, and she said, well, this is kind of strange, um, but I'll show you. Here's your original x-ray back on that Saturday before you guys prayed for me. And she said, here's what we thought was the fracture. I mean, it looks pretty clear like it's a fracture, and the bones moved. And she said, now, here's your CT scan. And it's not that it looks like it's healed. It looks like it was never fractured. And, um, and, and so what the doctor said was, yeah, it's strange. She kept saying, yeah, it's strange. And, um, and she ultimately said, we think what must have happened is somehow there was a vein that showed up on your x-ray. That's the only thing that we could think would explain this. But you and I know better. And so I wanted to thank you guys uh, for praying for me. And so my wrist is better. Yeah. So. <clears throat> All that. All right. Cool. Let's just let's just go. Let's just hit the pool. Right. We're done. Uh, no, David asked me to read, and so I'm going to read. Uh, we're looking at Acts, and uh, Acts is this just incredible book um, that talks about what the early church was like, and it's really cool and really different, probably, than what a lot of us think that church is like and so over the past few weeks we've seen uh the the followers of Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit and start to live in this community together if you guys remember you look at the end of Acts chapter 2 and it talks about all these incredible things that they do together um and then over the past couple of weeks I think you've looked with David at this story of Peter and John going to the temple and they're walking to the temple and they see a guy um who's on the ground he's lame he's a beggar he can't walk Um, And Peter looks at him, and he says, I don't have any money, but what I have I give to you. He said, in the name of Jesus, stand and walk. And the guy stands up and walks. And it's this incredible thing, and it's this, uh, they they are able to preach this sermon about who Jesus is out of it. Um, And then, of course, they get thrown into jail for helping a guy walk, right? Like, why wouldn't? That happened, but uh, the the heads of the temple, kind of the authorities of that time, who are the people that had crucified Jesus, they'd argue with Jesus and ended up being responsible for handing Jesus over to be crucified. These same guys get together because uh, Peter and John are proclaiming the name of Jesus as they heal people, and they're not sure what to do with them, so they throw them in jail. And we're going to pick up here in chapter four. Um, they've thrown them in jail overnight, and now they bring them. Before the temple leaders, and this is their interaction. This is Peter and John interacting uh, with the temple leaders. So here we go. This is starting in verse 5 of chapter 4. It says, The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, right? Those are big names if you've been following the story of Jesus with Luke, right? Those are gasp worthy names, right? They're like, We know Annas, we know Caiaphas. They knew to boo and hiss. At those names, because those were the guys that Jesus had gone before. Um, so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men in the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. And it's an interesting question. We'll come back to why this is important. He says, by what power or what name did you do this? This is a question they would always ask Jesus. Who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority? Temple authority was a big deal for them. So that's why they're asking this question says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the answer, by the way, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, and here they're quoting that passage, that Psalm 118 that Ashley read at the beginning of the service, they're actually quoting that same Psalm here. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, which means the finishing stone. There's a lot of temple imagery for them here. There was this idea of God was going to build a new temple someday, and it was going to be finished Off by this incredible capstone. And they're saying that's Jesus. Jesus is the completion of the new temple. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they're kind of stuck. They're like, we don't really have any bullets to shoot right now because the guy's healed and so that's tough to argue with and so they think all we can really do right now is just pull them in and tell them to stop it that's that's their whole plan then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of jesus but peter and john replied judge for yourselves whether it is right in god's sight to obey you rather than god For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And that's the mic drop moment, right? Like you, there's no response there. And further threats, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, to conspire against your holy servant David, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miracles, signs, and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And they prayed the place, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. So I've had a few conversations um, in the past week or so, and and what they've centered around is this idea that it feels like our world is changing at a very rapid rate. Do you notice that? It feels like that change is different even than it has been. Things are always changing, and I I get that, and and maybe people feel like um, the rate picks up, but for one of the first times in our society, there's a high value on change for the sake of change. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and that's never been the case. In that people, most for most of, of history, when it comes even to our culture and even to the United States, change has been looked at as you need to move slow, you need to be very cautious, and you need to be aware. And now... It's almost like change is just embraced for the sake of change. Do you understand that that's going on? Like, here's a stupid example that I thought of today. How many of you um, have had in the past five years more than two phones? You've had you've had two new phones in the past five years. Yeah, anybody? How many of you, How many of you guys have had more than three new phones, would you say, in the past? How many of you have had more had more than one new phone in the past year? Anybody? Like, you've had multiple new phones, right? Yeah. So, for the first 22 years of my life, that was my phone. Anybody have that phone? The beige phone? Yes, we all had it. There wasn't even, like, types of phones. There was that one, and there was a green one, right? And there were, like, two or three phones, and that was all you had. You did not get a new phone. And you just sort of lived in that phone. Even the phrase, like, I lost my phone, was those words didn't even go together. You didn't lose your phone. It just sat there. You might lose your phone privileges, right? You might have your phone turned off. But you didn't lose your phone. Like, there's just this new thing. And how many of you already want a new phone? Yes, absolutely. We all do. Let's just admit it. There's just this value Of change. We live in an incredibly fast changing society, and that's kind of a simple, superficial term for it. But there's all kinds of changes that are happening daily and weekly, and and the pace is so quick. And sometimes it just makes you nervous and anxious, doesn't it? Like it makes you, or you're the kind of person who loves change, and you're like, yes, whatever the next thing is, I value that. Usually it's based on age, not always. But, but there's this response that we have to change. Change creates this tension. And, and they lived in a similar place in Acts. And, and that's, that's the kind of feel that you have in this conversation between Peter and John and the temple leaders is that things are changing rapidly from what people expected them to be and how people expected things to work and how people expected people to behave. And for some, it created a lot of tension. And for these temple leaders, you even see them in this passage thinking, they're like, what do we, what, how, who are these guys, right? There's all of these questions that are coming up in them, and it centers around this idea of who exactly is in charge. And that's a scary question when you don't know the answer, isn't it? When you don't know who is in charge. Trust me, I spend most of my time with middle schoolers and high schoolers. And if I walk into a situation and I don't know who is in charge, it is a scary place to be. Right? It, is, it, is, it can be very scary and very disarming when you're not sure who is in charge. There's, there, there, there's this big narrative that most of the people in Israel had lived in for all their lives, and their parents had lived there, and their parents before them had lived there. We've talked about it before in here. You've heard David talk about it. He's got this great chart. I'm not going to give you the great chart today, but it was this idea that life was going to exist in two acts. You know what I'm talking about? That there was this sort of two-act play, right? And on one side, that's mine. That's my That's my great chart, if you guys just want to acknowledge. Um, it's not as good as David's great chart. Uh, so... Israel, Israel believed that the world was going to happen in two acts. In the first act, they called this present evil age. Some of you guys are familiar with this terminology. You've heard us talk about it before. And this present evil age was sort of the place where, where the devil, where Satan got to have this, this limited ruling power. You guys hear him in the Bible. He's called the prince of this age. Right, you see him offer Jesus certain amounts of authority it 's where this idea where where sin is allowed this this limited rule, not entire rule, but but this limited opportunity to rule it 's an area where the scriptures say people are blinded to god it 's very hard to see who God is uh, there 's a lot of idolatry, people worship other gods, um, and there 's general chaos. things do not operate in a peaceful. Ordered way. And Israel believed that this was the time that they lived in, and that eventually all of their prophecies pointed to this second act that would take place called the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom of God, God would finally and fully rule. And everything that happened would be God's desire and God's reigns. And people's eyes would be open, for good or for bad, to the truth who God was, and peace and liberation was going to come from this Messiah. There was going to be this saving character that would step in and and bring liberation to people in bondage and bring peace where there was chaos. And God was going to be fully available, whereas in the present evil age, God's availability was limited to certain people and to certain places, particularly the temple was where God's presence resided. And, and that's the way they thought the world was going to unfold. And so Jesus steps in and, and messes with that. Jesus steps in and he says, there's actually not two acts, there's three acts. And, and there's this middle act where the kingdom of God comes near. Where the kingdom of God, some people say, in some translations say, becomes touchable. That if you're willing to reach out, you can have it. It can be touched, but it comes alongside this present evil age for a time. And the reason that God allows this is that so as many as possible might decide that they're going to enjoy the fullness of the kingdom. That's why God brings a middle act. It's not for entertainment purposes, right? It's not just to make things longer. But that God is coming in with a middle act because God in God's infinite wisdom and love has said, I want to make more space for people to come in. I want to create more space for people to not all have to be blind, for people not all to have to be limited, but where they can experience my presence before a final decision is made. And that's the change that everybody in this passage is trying to deal with. Everybody in this passage is trying to experience and deal with this change, that that it's not just two acts, it's not just either or, that God has allowed for a time for there to be a both and. And the question that everybody is asking or trying to answer is this, who exactly is in charge? Who exactly gets to be in charge now? Things aren't operating the way that we thought they would in either act. And so over here, we see all these things that are still present. And then over here, we suddenly see these new things. People who couldn't walk all their lives are standing and walking, right? Like miraculous things are happening. Unschooled people are speaking with authority. The presence of the Spirit is pouring out everywhere and not just in the temple. And the question is, who exactly is in charge? And the answer doesn't feel simple. It doesn't feel simple. There's a lot of questions going on. But, but what I think we can see today in these interactions is that choosing who to follow is pretty simple. Choosing which act to grab hold of in the middle act is actually pretty simple. And the reason is this. The first act is always temporary. And the third act is eternal. And the question is, which one do you want your life to be about? And you see the difference, right, in this passage between the temple authorities and between Peter and John. Peter and John are almost living on a completely separate plane, right? It's almost like the temple authorities are just sort of a side note to them. They're not really even interested in what the temple authorities have to say at this point or what the punishment is going to be. They're they're looking at them, and it's almost as though they're shrugging and saying, like, you really want us to not talk about people being healed? You really think, you're really asking us to listen to you rather than the God who raises the dead. And and it's a really simple choice for them. Because they've realized that there's an eternal act that is coming and they have decided, I want to be part of the eternal act. So the difficult thing is that you can kind of pick in the middle act which act do you really want to give your attention and time to? Does that make sense? We can choose in this room today, because we live in this middle act, do I want to give my time and attention to the first act? Because it's still out there. there it is very true that there are still things that are terrible in this world and that are not God's desire. That there are things that happen. People die. People uh, get forgotten about. There's, there's all kinds of injustice and things going on. And we, and we can devote our lives to that. And we can live in light of the first act. Or we can choose to live in the light of the third act, which is also breaking in. In this middle act. And you can see in this passage the difference between those two lives. Right? One is confused, scared, unsure, angry, anxious. And the other one is, is devoted and focused and powerful, and life-changing. See, the the truth of this passage, and and this is true no no matter where you are. If you're in here today, and you don't believe in anything I just said, and you don't believe in this, uh, this is true. It is that most of the time, living in reaction to our past shackles us to it. But living in hope of our destiny takes the world to new places. And the reason I say this is true is because you see that. You ever see people that are shackled to their own past? I'm not saying we don't live in light of our past or in light of history or that history is not important. I'm not saying that at all. History majors, history teachers, not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is when we live in reaction to our past, you ever see people who wish they weighed what they used to weigh? Who wish they looked like what they used to look like? And how that affects how they spend their money. How that affects how they spend their time. How that affects how they spend their attention. How it even affects how they think about their selves, themselves, right? You see that. That living in reaction to our past shackles us to it. But on the flip side, living in a hope of our destiny takes us in the world to new places. And, and, and that's the choice. That God gives us. And that's the choice that you see in passage. And that's actually the choice that I think a lot of what our lives and our community depends on. Is what choices will we make as individuals? Will we live in reaction to our past? Or will we live in hope of our destiny and into that third act? And so I just want to take a few minutes um, that we have left. And I'm going to talk about a couple of obstacles to living in hope of that destiny? And then a a couple of keys, things we see in this passage. The first obstacle is this. The first major obstacle, and you see this uh, with the temple leaders, is fear, right? And fear is what happens to us when we're constantly asking the question, who's in charge? When we don't know who is in charge, we respond with fear, right? And, and, And what starts is, that fear manifests itself in in one of a couple of ways. One is just our lives look distracted because we 're just running after whatever we thinks in charge in this minute. You know what I mean? My kids, i got to take care of my kids, and i got to make sure my kids are okay, and so that's in charge, and so I'm just going to run after that. and it's, it's all about being a good parent, so I just need to run after that. My job, my job's in charge, and I just need to run after that. I just need to go after that. Or this thing, this big crisis is happening, and that's in charge, and I just need to run after that big crisis. Or this thing's going on over here, and I'm looking at our finances, and I'm not sure how we're going to make it to there. And so I'm going to run after that, and your life just looks distracted. I don't know if you ever feel that way. I feel that way sometimes. Life is kind of like whack-a-mole. Right, Like, it's this thing. And then you're like, no, I didn't know that that thing was over there. And we're distracted. And eventually, if you live distracted long enough, you're just anxious. Because you don't know when the next mole is going to pop up. And you don't know what the next thing that you're going to have to bow to is. And it can be a real obstacle. And I was praying for us, and I was thinking, God, what's the answer to overcoming that obstacle? And there's this passage, 1 John 4, 18. It's this beautiful verse, and it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And the thing I want to encourage you with today is if you feel like fear is keeping you from fully embracing the kingdom of God, the thing I want you to know is you, you don't overcome fear because everything always works out for you. You overcome fear because you know the one in charge is perfect in loving you. So, so sometimes we do pray for healing and, and it doesn't happen. Right, It's the way I felt about my wrist for, for over a month. And we can respond to say, well, well, who's in charge? If I ask God to heal me and it didn't happen, who's in charge? But the way we overcome that is we say, no, 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 no. God is in charge. And he loves me perfectly. And so even if I don't see him right now, I know that I'm going to be okay. It looked like in that moment, I'll bet with those temple leaders, the same guys that had put Jesus to death, the same guys that had made Peter run away just 40 or 50 days earlier, it sure looked like they were in charge in that moment. Peter knew what they could do. But Peter also knew that there was somebody else who was in charge even over death. And so what they could do was limited. But the one who could overcome loved him perfectly. So I want to encourage you today, if you're afraid, that perfect love conquers fear. That you don't have to be afraid because the one in charge loves you perfectly. The second thing that I think is a big obstacle is offense. When we take offense constantly to the things that are happening to us to the things that we think are happening to our world. When we live in offense, and I'm not saying that offensive things don't happen. Don't get me wrong. Offensive things happen all the time. But What I'm saying is when we live as people who take offense, we're answering the question of who's in charge by saying, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. And anything that offends me is going to take my wrath. And so here it comes. And when we live that way, our lives look angry and they look exhausted. They look angry because we put ourselves in the position of God and we take on the wrath of our own because we're going to be offended by the things from the first act in this world. We are going to be offended. And the reason it, it looks like exhaustion is because you can only be angry at so many things. Anybody here tired of being offended? I am just tired of being offended, right? It's why you take breaks from social media, right? You're just tired. Like you're just tired of being offended all the time, all the time. And then when you finally get over something, there's something else that that sparks up to offend you. And it's because we still live in this present evil age. And, and, And offense never ends in anything. It doesn't. It just ends in more anger and more offense, and then you end up exhausted. And the response to offense is the same response we see from the disciples when they're attacked. This is what they say in Acts 4, 29. They say, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants. Lord, you consider their threats. They're not offending us. They're offending you. They're offending you. This isn't about us because we're your servants. And so, God, you take care of their threats and you enable your servants and you fill us with your spirit. We'll do whatever we need to do. And today, if you just find yourself constantly offended, constantly angry with what's happening in our culture, with what's happening in your family, with what's happening at your workplace, I'd encourage you to make that your prayer. Not to deny the offense. The offense is real. But to say, God, it's, it's, it's offense against you. It's not offense against me. And so you consider the threats and you enable your servant. And I'll do what you would have me do. Now I want to jump into this and, and, and really camp out um, on this one spot for a few minutes. And this idea of, of, of what, are, what are the keys, what are some keys at least that we see in this passage to living in the hope of our destiny. And the first is this, fullness of the Spirit. Fullness of the Spirit. It's the key, right? In the beginning of the passage, you read that Peter is full of the Spirit. At the end of the passage, you hear them asking for and receiving the fullness of the Spirit again. And I know a lot of times you feel like we've been talking about fullness of the Spirit since we started Acts. Are we really talking about fullness of the Spirit again? And the answer is yes, absolutely. This is is the key. It is absolutely the key difference maker, right? So so you hear in the scriptures when it talks about Jesus, it says John looks at Jesus and he says, here's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. But John also looks at Jesus and it's recorded again and again and again. And he says, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this side, this side of death, probably maybe the most crucial gift we get is is the fullness of the Holy Spirit to live in the hope of our destiny, this side of the third act. Absolutely living in the fullness of the Spirit is key. And asking and keep asking and being filled again and again and again. Um, I bought a car recently, and one of the great surprises that I found out was that the fuel gauge doesn't work. Anybody got that problem? I know Bo does, right? And the fuel gauge doesn't work. And so sometimes I'm just wondering, right, is this going to work out today or is it not? In a couple of days, it has not worked out, and it is not fun. But if I would fill up my tank every day, I would never wonder, Right? And I think there's something to be drawn on in the fullness of the Spirit in that. Is that do we need to keep talking about the fullness of the Spirit? Yes, as much as we need to keep asking for the fullness of the Spirit. Again and again and again and again. Because we need it. Because we live in a world that is still in that first act. And it is constantly causing us to spend that fullness every minute. And so absolutely we ask for the fullness of the Spirit. See, too long we have fought the first act on its own terms. Right? We have believed in this idea that old intelligence and old temple are the way to get. It. And what I mean, like, what I mean by that is, like, you guys have heard this. We live in a secular society, right? I used to hear that term forever, and I didn't know what it meant. But essentially, it's this idea that that we're constantly questioning and constantly digging in with our minds, and constantly asking and wondering and judging and and doing all these things. And ultimately, what it's turned into is this idea um, that you teach your way to the truth. That you teach and question and analyze your way to the truth. And the way the church has responded to that, stay with me just for a minute. The way the church has responded to that is to say, okay, cool, we're going to be better teachers. We're going to have better events, right? We're going to gather people to better places, but we're going to play by the same rules. What the Holy Spirit says is, no, there is a longing in the hearts of people for something more than the old temple and something more than the old intelligence. There's, a, um, there's, there's kind of this guy, he's, he's known as one of the uh, fathers of, of secularism, and his name's Julian oh, write, Julian Barnes. If you've ever heard of Julian Barnes. And Julian Barnes wrote this book. It was a bit of an autobiography. And one of the things, Julian Barnes has never set foot in a church, never been religious at all. And, and one of the quotes from that um, is up here on, he, said, he says this in that book. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. You hear in our society a longing for a new intelligence and a new temple. That's why we need the fullness of the Spirit. It's not going to be enough to teach people into the kingdom of God. It's the experience of the kingdom of God coming on earth. It's what they couldn't argue against, right? They were stuck. They're like, maybe we can tell you to stop talking about it, but you're healing people. We can't say you're, we can't say you're wrong. And it's grabbing hold. Of this new intelligence that says it's God, it's the fullness of the Spirit speaking through us that that people need to hear. And this new temple, it's God building something that doesn't say come into a room and hear a lecture for a little while and then go out and try to live that way. It's God saying when I come into the room, take me out into the community and change it. That's living in the third act. That's living in our hope and in our destiny. There is a longing for God that exists in our world, and we have got to stop being offended, and we have got to go on the offensive. We belong to a superior kingdom, and we don't need to play by inferior rules. You know, it says, this was such an interesting part of the passage to me. It said uh, that they couldn't, they, it says everybody was amazed because the guy was healed and he was 40 years old. Doesn't that sound weird? It's like they think people died at 40, am I in trouble soon, right? Like, it's like, man, if anything after 40, if anything heals, you're lucky, right? No, I don't think that's what it was. I think that what they saw was that for 40 years, the temple had no answer for this guy. And in one minute, in one sentence, the power of God healed him. How many people are out there looking for secular answers to their depression and secular answers to their broken families and secular answers to their broken lives? And we're trying to teach them out of it. And what they need is the power of the spirit to come into their lives. I say it again. We belong to a superior kingdom and we no longer need to live by rules. When we do this, we receive the boldness and the power and the true authority of God. And then, and then, and then, I love this. We're going to talk about this more next week, so I'll stop. Um, but, But then they combine that with community. We hear all of this, and we think, okay, cool, so I'm going to go read my Bible more, or I'm going to go pray more by myself, or I'm going to go add this to my own personal life. But they did all of this in community. They prayed together. They spoke the scriptures together. They went out together. They had this community, and they never went alone. And then when they put those two things together, when they put the fullness of the Spirit and, and the strength of the community together, they went out in this prayerful going. I want to tell you guys a story, and I'll be done. I'm part of a small group um, uh, that meets, uh, that's, that's a part of our church. I asked if I could tell this story, and they said that was okay. And to be honest with you guys, most of the time, we are kind of a hot mess. You know what that means? Older people, that means that um, we're just messy. Like There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of, did, 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 what happened this week in our small group? What actually went on? Um, But a few weeks ago, somebody in our small group just said they felt this conviction and they said, we need to start praying specifically for each other. And so they said, I want specific prayer requests. And they sent out this list and everybody on the email started praying over these specific prayer requests for each other. And uh, one of the couples, uh, they, they really want to purchase this house. And um, long story short, uh, nobody's living in the house, but it's owned by a, a, a much, much older person. And that older person, uh, when they pursued trying to purchase the house, has been really cold. It's only been phone calls. They've never met that person. Um, but that person's been really cold and really harsh and really standoffish. And they were just feeling anxiety. And they said, we, we just want this house. Um, will you guys start praying for us uh, to purchase this house? And so that, the wife in that couple um, was, went to lunch. Uh, with the wife uh, uh, of another couple um, in the group the other day, and driving back from lunch, they said, "Let's just drive by the house." And so they're driving by the house, um, and uh, the the first person—it's harder because their names are also the same, so it's more difficult for me. But the first person who wanted to to buy the home um, was driving by the house, and they saw a car parked out in front of it, and they've never seen a car parked out in front of it. And she said, "Oh no." And the second woman, here's what you need to know about the second woman. She is just painfully, painfully shy, right? She makes David Eldridge look like he's running for mayor. That's how much of an (laughs) introvert she is, okay? And and this second woman looks at her, and she says, let's stop and go in. And she says, what? No, no, we don't need to do this. This is going to be weird. This is going to be awkward. And the second woman just grabbed her up and said, come on, we're going. This woman, who is generally shy and timid and doesn't speak out, grabs this other woman and says, This for you. Let's do this. And they walk up the driveway, and the door is cracked. And this second woman, again, our introvert, just swings the door open and says, Knock, knock, <laughs> and walks in and stands on in front of this 80-year-old woman and introduces herself. And they begin to talk with this woman about life. And they say, hey, we were driving by, and we saw your house, and we were coming back, and it's our kid's last day of school. And this woman begins to talk about her grandchildren and her husband and all these things that are going on in their lives and invites them to some corn-on-the-cob festival I didn't know about. But all of this happens, and a relationship becomes established, and they leave. And, and the first woman sent us all an email telling us this story, and she said, and you know what, I'll be excited if we get in the house, but something better is happening is that the third act is breaking in. And it sounds so simple, and it is, y'all, but it's because we're just starting to taste it. We're just starting to taste it. That is God's desire for us. So I'm going to get Bo back up here. We have a few minutes. If we have, some, uh, if we have a couple of ministry teams that can come up, we're going to have a response. If y'all could come up um, to pray for people. And so when I was praying for our response, three things uh, in, in my mind. Um, and in my heart that I wanted to share with you guys. They're going to come up on the screen. So so sort of three questions. We'll pray for you about anything. If you need the breaking in of the kingdom in your life, we want to pray for you in any area, but specifically these three things. Um, The first is if you're stuck on the question, who's in control? If there's either a ton of fear in your life right now or, or there's a ton of offense in your life right now, We would love to pray for you about those things and ask God to just reveal himself as the one in control. Um, The second is this, old or new. Old or new, where are you going to live? Do you want to live in reaction to Act 1? Or do you want to live in hope of Act 3? Because to be honest with you, Christians do both a lot of the time. A lot of times we still play by the old rules and live in the old rules. And, and just to ask God, maybe it's even you just asking God, God, where do I live most of the time? Where do I spend most of my life and where am I right now? Am I, am I looking back at Act 1 or am I looking forward to Act 3? And if you'd like us to pray for you about that, we can. And then this one. This one in particular, um, I, I felt like there are people in here uh, that the Lord is just calling into this one. And that's who's going with me. Who are the people in my story that are my community? If you're in here today and you just feel alone, and, and I particularly thought about single people who you wonder, is there anybody to go with me? We would love to pray with you. We would love to pray with you if you're a single person and, and that's a wondering for you. Is there ever going to be anybody to go with me? What does community look like as, as a single person? And then the second thing is I want to pray uh, for, for married people who uh, either, as, either, either together as spouses, you think we don't know how to go together. That That's a struggle for us. We don't know how to walk into these things together and we want God's help. Or maybe you're a spouse and, and you're here by yourself and, and your spouse is not even, even close to this yet. And, and you want prayer for that as well. We would love to pray for you. So I'm going to pray over us and then you guys can respond and stand and worship. Let's pray. God, first we just thank you for your great mercy. God, that... Um, that you haven't just sort of thrown things straight into the third act. That there was, that there is still place for us to respond to you. And God, we thank you that you haven't just left us in the first act, God. That we're not just left hopeless or in despair, but because of your Son, we can live in this space of hoping for our destiny, and not just hoping for our destiny, but but by the power of the Spirit, seeing it drawn into our present. God, I pray for all of us that we would live more.